The You Feel Question by Kurt Vonnegut. Ladies and gentlemen of the Federal Communications Commission, I appreciate this opportunity to testify on the subject before you. I won't deny that all three of us, Lou Harrison, the radio announcer, Dr. Fred Bachman, the physicist, and myself, a sociology professor, found peace of mind. We did. And I won't say it's wrong for people to seek peace of mind. But if somebody thinks he wants peace of mind the way we found it, he'd be well advised to seek coronary thrombosis instead. Lou, Fred, and I found peace of mind by turning on a gadget the size of a table model television set. No herbs, no golden rule, no muscle control, no sticking our noses in other people's troubles to forget our own. The gadget is, I think, what a lot of people vaguely foresaw as the crowning achievement of civilization. An electronic something or other, cheap, easily mass-produced, and can, at the flick of a switch, provide tranquility. Oh, I see you have one here. My first brush with synthetic peace of mind was six months ago. It was also then that I got to know Lou Harrison, I'm sorry to say. Lou is chief announcer of our town's only radio station. He has a weekly science program where he gets some professor from Wyandotte College and interviews him about his particular field. Well, six months ago, Lou worked up a program around a young faculty friend of mine, Dr. Fred Bachman. I gave Fred a lift to the radio station, and he invited me to come on in and watch. What Lou Harrison wanted to interview him about is this eight-ton umbrella of his that he listens to the stars with. The way I understand it, instead of looking at the stars through a telescope, he aims this thing out in space and picks up radio signals coming from different heavenly bodies. Of course, there aren't people running radio stations out there. It's just that many of the heavenly bodies pour out a lot of energy, and some of it can be picked up in the radio frequency band. That isn't all the outfit can do. And in his interview with Fred, Lou Harrison saved the most exciting part until the end of the program. That's very interesting, Dr. Bachman, Lou said. Tell me, has your radio telescope turned up anything else about the universe that hasn't been revealed by ordinary light telescopes? This was the snapper. Yes, it has, Fred said. We found about 50 spots in space that give off powerful radio signals, yet no heavenly bodies at all seem to be there. Well, Lou said in mock surprise, I should say that is something. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in radio history, we bring you the noise from Dr. Bachman's mysterious voids. The noise wasn't much to hear, a wavering hiss, more like a leaking tire than anything else. It was supposed to be on the air for five seconds. When the engineer switched it off, we were all grinning like idiots. Lou Harrison glanced at the studio clock. The monotonous hiss had been on the air for five minutes. If the engineer's cuff hadn't accidentally caught on the switch, it might be on yet. Lou hunted for his place in the script. The hiss from nowhere, Lou said. 
Uh, Dr. Bachman, has anyone proposed a name for these interesting voids? No, Fred said. At the present time, they have neither a name nor an explanation. The voids the hiss came from have still to be explained. But I've suggested a name for them that shows signs of sticking. Bachman's Euphoria. We may not know what the spots are, but we know what they do. So the name's a good one. After the broadcast, Fred, Lou, and I were cordial to one another to the point of being maudlin. I can't remember when a broadcast has been such a pleasure, Lou said. Sincerity is not his forte, yet he meant it. We were all embarrassed by the emotion we felt, and parted company in bafflement and haste. I hurried home, only to walk into the middle of another unsettling experience. The house was quiet, and I made two trips through it before discovering that I was not alone. My wife, Susan, was lying on the couch, staring dreamily at the ceiling. Honey, I said tentatively, I'm home. Fred Bachman was on the radio today, she said in a faraway voice. I know. I was with him in the studio. He was out of this world, she sighed. That noise from space, when he turned that on, everything just seemed to drop away from me. Uh-huh, I said, biting my lip. Well, guess I'd better round up Eddie. Eddie is my ten-year-old son and captain of an apparently invincible neighborhood baseball team. Save your strength, Pop, said a small voice from the shadows. You home? What's the matter? Game called off on account of atomic attack? Nope. We finished eight innings. Beating them so bad they didn't want to go on, huh? Oh, they were doing pretty good. He talked as though he were recounting a dream. And then, he said, his eyes widening, everybody kind of lost interest, just wandered off. Why? I asked incredulously. Pop, Eddie said thoughtfully, I'm damned if I know. I was damned if anybody could explain it. But I had a nagging hunch. I dialed Fred Bachman's number. Fred, am I getting you up from dinner? I wish you were, Fred said. Not a scrap to eat in the house, and I let Marion have the car today so she could do the marketing. Couldn't get the car started, huh? Sure she got the car started, said Fred. She even got to the market. Then she felt so good, she walked right out of the place again. Fred sounded depressed. She tried to tell me everybody wanted out of the market with her, clerks and all. Fred, I said, I got news for you. Can I drive out right after supper? When I arrived at Fred's, he was staring dumbfounded at the evening paper. The whole town went nuts, he said, for no reason at all. Says here people shut up in the middle of sentences and stayed that way for five minutes. Hundreds wandered around in the cold in their shirt sleeves, grinning like toothpaste ads. He rattled the paper. This is what you wanted to talk to me about? I nodded. It all happened when that noise was being broadcast, and I thought maybe... The odds are about one in a million that there's any maybe about it, said Fred. The time checks to the second. 
But most people weren't listening to the program. They didn't have to, if my theory's right. We took those faint signals from space, amplified them about a thousand times, and rebroadcast them. Anybody within reach of the transmitter would get a good dose. How come you never felt the effect at work? Because I never amplified and rebroadcast the signals. The radio station's transmitter is what really put the sock into them. Without a preliminary knock, the front door burst open and Lou Harrison, florid and panting, swept into the room. You're cutting him in on it, too? he demanded, pointing at me. Fred blinked at him. In on what? The millions, Lou said. Wonderful, Fred said. What are you talking about? The noise from the stars, Lou said. Did you see the papers? He sobered for an instant. It was the noise that did it, wasn't it, Doc? We think so, Fred said. He looked worried. How exactly do you propose we get our hands on these millions? Maybe it's the kind of thing that shouldn't be cashed in on, I suggested. I mean, we don't know a great deal about... Is happiness bad? Lou interrupted. No, I admitted. Okay. And what we do with this stuff from the stars is make people happy. Now, I suppose you're going to tell me that's bad. People ought to be happy, Fred said. Okay, Lou said loftily. That's what we're going to do for the people. And the way the people can show their gratitude is in real estate. He looked out the window. Good, a barn. We can start right there. We set up a transmitter in the barn, run a line out to your antenna, and we've got a real estate development. Sorry, Fred said. I don't follow you. This place wouldn't do for a development. The roads are poor, the view is lousy, and the ground is full of rocks. Lou nudged Fred several times with his elbow. Doc, Doc, sure it's got drawbacks, but with that transmitter in the barn, you can give them the most precious thing in all creation. Happiness. Euphoria Heights, I said. That's great, said Lou. I get the prospects, Doc, and you'd sit up there in the barn with your hand on the switch. Once a prospect set foot on Euphoria Heights and you shop the happiness to him, there's nothing he wouldn't pay for a lot. Every house a home, as long as the power doesn't fail, I said. Then, Lou said, his eyes shining, when we sell all the lots here, we move the transmitter and start another development. No, Fred said quietly. If I ever joined a church, I couldn't face the minister. So we give him a jolt, Lou said brightly. No, Fred said. Sorry. Okay, Lou said. I was prepared for that. I've got an alternative, and this one's strictly legitimate. We make a little amplifier with a transmitter and an aerial on it. Shouldn't cost over fifty bucks to make, so we'd price it in the range of the common man. Five hundred bucks, say. We make arrangements with the phone company to pipe signals from your antenna right into the homes of people with these sets. The sets take the signal from the phone line, amplify it, and broadcast it through the houses to make everybody in them happy. See? Instead of turning on the radio or television, everybody's going to want to turn on the happiness. 
We could call it the Euphoria Phone, I suggested. Or Euphio, for short. That's great. That's great, Lou said. What do you say, Doc? I don't know, Fred looked worried. This sort of thing is out of my line. We all have to recognize our limitations, Doc, Lou said expansively. I'll handle the business end, and you handle the technical end. Or maybe you don't want to be a millionaire. Oh, yes, yes, indeed I do, Fred said quickly. Yes, indeed. All righty, Lou said. The first thing we got to do is build one of the sets and test her. The first test of the Euphoria phone, or Euphio, took place in Fred Bachman's living room on a Saturday afternoon, five days after Fred's and Lou's sensational radio broadcast. There were six guinea pigs. Lou, Fred, and his wife, Marion, myself, my wife, Susan, and my son, Eddie. The Bachmans had arranged chairs in a circle around a table on which rested a gray steel box. While Fred fussed with the box, the rest of us made nervous small talk over sandwiches and beer. Eddie was playing a spirited game of flies and grounders with himself near the French doors, using a dead tennis ball and a poker. Eddie, Susan said for the tenth time, please stop. It's under control, he said disdainfully, playing the ball off four walls and catching it with one hand. Marion, who vents her maternal instincts on her immaculate furnishings, couldn't hide her distress at Eddie's turning the place into a gymnasium. Lou, in his way, was trying to calm her. Let him wreck the dump. You'll be moving into a palace one of these days. It's ready, Fred said softly. We looked at him with queasy bravery. Fred plugged two jacks from the phone line into the gray box. This was the direct line to his antenna on the campus, and clockwork would keep the antenna fixed on one of the mysterious voids in the sky. He rested his hand on a switch. Ready? Don't, Fred, I said. I was scared stiff. Turn it on. Turn it on, Lou said. We wouldn't have the telephone today if Bell hadn't had the guts to call somebody up. I'll stand right here by the switch ready to flicker off if something goes sour, Fred said reassuringly. There was a click, and a hum, and the Euphil was on. A deep, unanimous sigh filled the room. The poker slipped from Eddie's hands. He moved across the room in a stately sort of waltz, knelt by his mother, and laid his head in her lap. Fred drifted away from his post, humming, his eyes half-closed. Lou Harrison was the first to speak, continuing his conversation with Marion. But who cares for material wealth? Uh-huh, said Susan, shaking her head dreamily. She put her arms around Lou and kissed him for about five minutes. Say, I said, patting Susan on the back, you kids get along swell, don't you? Fred was still prowling around the room, smiling his eyes now closed all the way. His heel caught in a lamp cord, and he went sprawling on the hearth. Hi-ho, everybody, he said, his eyes still closed. He stayed there, giggling occasionally. The doorbell's been ringing for a while, Susan said. I don't suppose it means anything. Come in, come in, I shouted. 
a small, very serious old man in white had let himself in. Milkman, he said uncertainly. He held out a slip of paper to Marion. I can't read the last line in your note, he said. What's that say about cottage cheese, 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 cheese? His voice trailed off as he settled tailor fashion to the floor. After he had been silent for perhaps three quarters of an hour, a look of concern crossed his face. Well, he said apathetically, I can only stay for a minute. My truck's parked out on the shoulder, kind of blocking things. He started to stand. Lou gave the volume knob on the feel a twist. The milkman wilted to the floor. Ah, said everybody. Good day to be indoors, the milkman said. Radio says we'll catch the tail end of the Atlantic hurricane. Let her come, I said. I've got my car parked under a big dead tree. I lapsed back into a warm fog of silence. I was snapped out of it by a repetition of the doorbells ringing. I said, come in, I mumbled. And I did, the milkman mumbled. The door swung open, and a state trooper glared in at us. Who the hell's got his milk truck out there blocking the road? He spotted the milkman. Ah, don't you know somebody could get killed coming around a blind curve into that thing? He yawned, and his ferocious expression gave way to an affectionate smile. It's so damn unlikely, he said. I don't know why I ever brought it up. He sat down by Eddie. Hey, kid. Like guns? He took his revolver from its holster. Eddie took the gun and aimed it at Marion's bottle collection and fired. A large blue bottle popped to dust, and the window behind the collection splintered. Cold air roared in through the opening. He'll make a cop yet, Marion chortled. God, I'm happy, I said, feeling a little like crying. I heard the gun go off twice more, then dropped into heavenly oblivion. Again, the doorbell roused me. How many times do I have to tell you, for heaven's sake, come in? I heard the tramping of many feet, but had no curiosity about them. A little later, I noticed that I was having difficulty breathing. Investigation revealed that I had slipped to the floor, and that several Boy Scouts had bivouacked on my chest and abdomen. You want something? I asked the tenderfoot, whose hot, measured breathing was in my face. Beaver Patrol wanted old newspapers, but forget it, he said. We just have to carry them somewhere. Mom, I'm kind of hungry, Eddie said. Oh, Eddie, you're not going to make your mother cook just when we're having such a wonderful time, Susan said. Lou Harrison gave the Ufeels volume knob another twist. There, kid. How's that? Ah, oh, said everybody. When awareness intruded on oblivion again, I felt around for the beaver patrol and found them missing. I opened my eyes to see that they and Eddie and the milkman and Lou and the trooper were standing by a picture window, cheering. She's going, 
She's going. She's going. The milkman cried ecstatically. Susan and I arrived just in time to join in the cheering as the big elm crashed down on our sedan. Kirunch, said Susan, and I laughed until my stomach hurt. Now we're really going to see something, Eddie yelled. The power line's going to get it this time. Look at that poplar lean. The poplar leaned closer, closer, closer to the power line, and then a gust brought it down in a hail of sparks. The lights in the house went off. How come nobody cheered? Lou said faintly. Do you feel it's off? A horrible groan came from the fireplace. God, I think I've got a concussion. Marion knelt by her husband and wailed, Darling, my poor darling, what happened to you? I looked at the woman I had my arms around. A dreadful, dirty old hag with red eyes sunk deep in her head and hair like Medusa's. Oh, I said, and turned away in disgust. Honey, wept the witch, it's me, Susan. Moans filled the air and pitiful cries for food and water. Suddenly, the room had become terribly cold. Only a moment before, I had imagined I was in the tropics. The chief of the beaver patrol, with the incredible stamina of the young, was the hero of the day. He fell in his men in two ranks, haranguing them like an old army topkick. While the rest of us lay draped around the room, whimpering about hunger, cold, and thirst, the patrol started the furnace again, brought blankets, applied compresses to Fred's head and countless bark shins, blocked off the broken window, and made buckets of cocoa and coffee. Within two hours of the time that the power and the euphil went off, the house was warm and we had eaten. The serious respiratory cases, the people who had sat near the broken window for twenty-four hours, had been pumped full of penicillin and hauled off to the hospital. The milkman and the trooper had refused treatment and gone home. The beaver patrol had saluted smartly and left. Outside, repairmen were working on the power line. Only the original group remained. Lou, Fred, and Marion, Susan and myself, and Eddie. Susan had fallen asleep right after eating. Now she stirred. What happened? Happiness, I told her. Incomparable, continuous happiness. Happiness by the kilowatt. Lou Harrison, who looked like an anarchist, with his red eyes and fierce black beard, had been writing furiously. That's good. Happiness by the kilowatt, he said. Buy your happiness the way you buy light. Contract happiness the way you contract influenza, Fred said. Lou ignored him. It's a campaign, see? The first ad is for the long hairs. The price of one book, which may be a disappointment, will buy you sixty hours of Euphio. Euphio never disappoints. Then we hit the middle class. In the groin, Fred said. What's the matter with you people, Lou said. You act as though the experiment had failed. Pneumonia and malnutrition are what we'd hoped for, Marion said. We had a cross-section of America in this room, and we made every last person happy, Lou said. Not for just an hour. 
not for just a day, but for two days without a break. He arose reverently from his chair. So what we do to keep it from killing the Ufeel fans is to have the thing turned on and off with clockwork, see? He ran his hands through his hair and rolled his eyes. And the selling points! My God, the selling points! No expensive toys for the kids. For the price of a trip to the movies, people can buy 30 hours of Ufeel. For the price of a fifth of whiskey, they can buy 60 hours of Ufeel. Or a big family bottle of potassium cyanide, Fred said. Don't you see it? Lou said incredulously. It'll bring families together again. Save the American home. A knock on the door interrupted him. A repairman stuck his head in to announce that the power would be on again in about two minutes. Look, Lou, Fred said, this little monster could kill civilization in less time than it took to burn down Rome. We're not going into the mind-numbness business, and that's that. You're kidding, Lou said aghast. He turned to Marion. Don't you want your husband to make a million? Not by operating an electronic opium den, Marion said coldly. Lou slapped his forehead. It's what the public wants. It'll be good to have the electricity again, Marion said, changing the subject. Lights, hot water heater, the... Oh, Lord! The lights came on the instant she said it. But Fred and I were already in midair, descending on the gray box. We crashed down on it together, and the plug was jerked from the socket. Expressionlessly, Fred took a screwdriver from his pocket and removed the top of the box. Would you enjoy doing battle with progress, he said, offering me the poker Eddie had dropped. In a frenzy... I stabbed and smashed at the Ufeel's glass and wire vitals. With my left hand, I kept Lou from throwing himself between the poker and the works. I thought you were on my side, Lou said. And there, ladies and gentlemen of the Federal Communications Commission, I thought the matter had ended. Now, through the medium of Lou Harrison's big mouth, word has leaked out. He petitioned you for permission to start commercial exploitation of Ufeel. Let me say again that all of Lou's claims are true. Ufeel will do everything he says it will. The happiness it gives is perfect and unflagging in the face of incredible adversity. Near tragedies, such as the first experiment, can no doubt be avoided with clockwork to turn the sets on and off. I see that this set on the table before you is, in fact, equipped with clockwork. The question is not whether you feel works. It does. The question is, rather, whether or not America is to enter a new and distressing phase of history, where men no longer pursue happiness, but buy it. The only benefit we could get from you feel would be if we could somehow lay down a peace-of-mind barrage on our enemies— while protecting our own people from it. In closing, I'd like to point out that Lou Harrison, the would-be czar of Ufeo, is an unscrupulous person, unworthy of public trust. It wouldn't surprise me, for instance, if he had set the clockwork on this sample Ufeo set so that its radiations would addle your judgments when you are trying to make a decision. In fact... 
it seems to be whirring suspiciously at this very moment. And I'm so happy I could cry. And good old Lou Harrison is the salt of the earth, believe me. I sure wish him a lot of good luck with his new enterprise. The Euphia Question by Kurt Vonnegut was read by Stuart Milligan. It was abridged and produced by Gemma Jenkins.